Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a, a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you. Oh, hi. Jonathan Edwards here, producer, editor, etc. This is part two. You're listening to part two of Joe's interview with Adam. Part one is already available, and you definitely do not want to miss that if you haven't listened to it already. We're skipping the intro and going right back to where we left off. Something about the nature of existence in the universe, and, well, you know what? I'll listen along with you, and we'll find out together. Are you annoyed you can't dial in once in a while just check in? Yeah. Even if it's a couple hundred years yeah. later, like what, what's, what's, what's still going on? What's left here? Yeah. Well, the life happened because of very specific circumstances came together and these proteins and the constituents of life were formed and they combined somehow. Yeah. And they were able to change um, without, external cause they, they, they these little constituents came together and change was happening in within them you know a rock doesn't change without something acting on it yeah wind or you push it over or you smash or whatever these little constituents could change through an impetus internal to themselves yeah. All of, you know, there's all these changes going on in us all the time, but it's sort of automatic. Yeah, we just arrived in the middle of a story. I don't, sometimes I feel like a, a stranger. I, I thought I had such autonomy the way we're raised. You could Everything's up to you. You're going to have... And now I'm 44, and I realize how little access or agency sometimes I even have over my own brain. Um the cadence and momentum of the thoughts I would even want to have that day yeah. are out of my grasp. I can't steer them. Yeah. You could think of consciousness as a tip of a pyramid. Mm -hmm. uh, the tip, you know, came last. Yeah. You needed all this stuff first and in place before Put the apex on there before you could have consciousness. And it only gives us access to very little about what's going on in us. But some, did you ever feel consciousness is not of you? Like there's the, the, the like I the the meditation practice I have is this idea of non duality like they're the self's this it's an illusion, um, but it seems necessary sometimes. But if it's unmeasured, unchecked, it makes you ill. It makes life hard. So for 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 me, like a person with histories, harm, like likes, dislikes, pain, pleasure, uh, I'll ruminate hmm. and I freeze. I stop 
I don't interact with the physical world. Well, I start, my fitness isn't going well. Mm. And this is all happening in consciousness. But if I I put consciousness under a microscope of what I think I'm calling me, say I meditate for 10 minutes. And this, I think this is profound and is the idea of my recovery. I don't have the agency I thought I had. If I start watching what's really arising in my head and I'm not choosing it. So is this, where is the self in this mix of, of, of consciousness thoughts rise up and where I put my attention kind of seems to be a pattern or without thought or, or choice. I, I get on feedback loops. So like who's in fucking charge? So the self is a very interesting topic. Um, I guess kind of, we sort of think of the self as like those things about us, which which sort of stay there. You know, like the self is my memories, my dispositions, my likes, dislikes, my personality, all that stuff. Um, but then you look inside for the self in the sense of a hard kernel that's always there. That's us. What is most us? You know, memories can change, disappear. We could forget. New memories come. So that can't be essential to the self because, you know, doesn't the memories don't make us who we are through through our life. Or the uh, even would you go far as to say because this is what I I believe talking to yourself the internal voice it's it's. I do it in yeah, English. So, it's it's, so, it's an English language yeah. in there. That I I can't call that self all yeah, the time. So I, there's you can reflect on your own thoughts, right, and your feelings. So you have the feeling self, the thing, the the perceiving self, then the self that looks at that and yeah. can reflect on it, on your memories of perceiving and of acting and all that. So the self is split in the sense that. There's a reflecting and there's a reflective upon self. There's the self, the spontaneous self, which is acting and thinking and perceiving, and then the self that looks at that stuff and thinks about that. Um, and, you know, which is the real self? Well, they're both obviously part of the self, but where's the hard kernel that doesn't change? Yeah. And would you call that change? It's not Joe Van Wee. It's not Adam. How do you describe it? You know, I've hear, you know, teachers, Hindu, Buddhist, the self, it's this open awareness, right? But is the, the understanding and texture and depth of awareness, how does that separate from cognition? What if you're not... In, intelligent or you have brain damage or damage to your frontal lobe. What's the level of you having that awareness? So the self is, it's, it's not, I have a hard time understanding this because if I can't think or haven't thought well, even in English or the limitations of that, does it add value to what say a yogi's telling me open awareness is? Mm. (laughs) Where do they get pulled apart? Can they be? The, the two, what they sometimes I hear, maybe I'm misunderstanding it, but I've been studying it now three years. Yeah, well, I don't know yogi. Stuff. 
Like I'm saying yogi for the general term of, of say, a meditation or a, a Buddhist idea yeah, I know, of consciousness. I know, like, very little about I used to meditate, actually, a long time ago. I remember. I used to meditate a lot, but... Meditation, though, well, the kind I did, the point is to observe all this stuff arising in you and let it go. Not... Yeah. Um, and it's hard to, to let go of it just to look at it. Because it none of that is essential to the self. The self is empty. Yeah. The self is what is when all that stuff is removed. And <laughs> like that's... Um, that self, you could think of it as, I don't know, like an, an eye or a spotlight, which, you know, all this stuff is in the spotlight, that's rising it. and falling, but the spotlight is what you are. And, and, and that has no, that spotlight has no positive qualities. Um, now, this is great because I got to talk about Kant again. One of my favorite things in Kant has to do with this, what the self is when you, beyond the categories and perception and all that. He called, it's very big mouthful, the transcendental unity of that perception. And it's the same in everybody. It's, I guess the spotlight, I guess, would work too. It's that unity in time that makes memory and goals and everything possible. And that's why we have a self. We only have a self because all these rising and falling, all these different perceptions are unified in time. We can access what we just saw through memory. We can think about what we'll do tomorrow. We remember our childhood. This unity, access to what we've been and what we will be um, is the self. That's all it is. And I like you describe that, but, and that's kind of, but I think the way I was raised and Western thought, especially Judeo Christian is as the self may have existed prior to rising up. And here's the two problems. I have. When does self begin? Is it the same for an eight year old that it is for 16 and a 44? four-year-old no the, the transcendental unity is the possibility of, of self yeah well everything else that we think and perceive and remember is transitory yep the unity isn't uh the ah, okay the that's, unity is always there i mean point. it's interrupted when we go to sleep yeah but we remember going we remember going to bed the unity remains. We wake up and we remember yesterday. Did you? I've had periods of disassociation after coma. This, and I spoke to you about that. Yeah, it's interrupted. You sort of lose it. Yeah, yeah, it freaks you out because um, you see how little self is there. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's it's contingent on my memories. It's, at, <laughs> it's contingent. It's, it's it's nothing substantial about it. So because everybody has it, if they are, if they have this unity. They have a self, and it's no different from ours in terms of the unity. The unity is the same in the sense that they have a unity, I have a unity. We're talking about memory, narrative, waking right. up. Their memories the are different, but they have this unity in time. Yeah. That's how they can have memories. This is the thing that remains, and this is the kernel, the hard kernel that is there in the center that we are, and it's not substantial. It's not a thing. It has no qualities beyond the unity. So, 
6,000 years prior to Kant, Hinduism had this idea. And, and, and they poetically in the God of Shiva and his time and death, the impermanence. And then if I get stuck outside of what we would call the now, the unity or the pinpoint of the experience, um, you cause yourself undue suffering. Life will have suffering, but if I can't stay in the unity that you can't or that timeline, um, I think that's where this has all become profound to me because I, I didn't spend a lot of time in the unity. If I really examine my own thoughts and how I experience life, it seems like I'm always or always have almost a neurotic anxiety about me. Um, or at least internally, I learned how to hide it well, but, uh, at times, but when I would get the unity, it would be scary because it's really hard to hold on to self there. I'd like to be romantic when it comes to self, but I saw that slip away when I woke up from a coma <clears throat> and I would think of how, I don't know, fragile, the idea of what you're holding self is with the material world, what I can't see happening in my head, only having visuals come in my eyes. But there's stuff in there that I know if it gets broke, I just, I'm not going to be me. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Or like the memory of what I think I am it's now. It's very disturbing. It's real disturbing. Um, um, it rattled me. I work with retired nuns. Some of them have dementia. These were highly intelligent, accomplished people. Reduced to, I mean, th there's nothing left of what they were. They're, they don't have a personality anymore. They don't speak. They can't do anything for themselves. Some of them are clearly in d distress. Some of them can't speak, but it's they're constantly... All right, so the memories, and it's all jumbled up. Yeah. They have no idea what they're supposed to be doing at any time. They don't know how to do basic tasks. But they are afraid because everything's confusing and they're just afraid all the time. And do you think the fear and that anxiety is coming from just. It's because that their brain is literally parts of it are gone. That if you look at an Alzheimer's patient's brain, yeah. there's holes in it. Yeah. So they lost the ability to have that unity in time. They sometimes, you know, they, they transport back to. Have you ever experienced that yourself? I like a disassociative only through drugs. Uh, yeah, disassociative drugs like ketamine and dextrothorphan. When you take enough, you're sort of that self kind of goes. Oh, away. I've done it. It's it's. I don't know why I wanted to enjoy it. Like maybe the pain of an escape of, of of how little distress, emotional distress, I would have a threshold for. I was willing to step into that void. And I've it's, done it with heroic doses of psychedelics and etheogens. Uh, but I remember time, it is, becomes incoherent. Form becomes incoherent. There's a terror at first because whatever sense of self is still grasping. Whoa, 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 whoa. Maybe I took too much. I better fucking grip onto something here in my head. And then I'm just, it's incoherent. I'm gone. Like there's no body. There's only colors, fractal kind of shapes. Like a puzzle factory kind of unfolds itself. And 
What's interesting to me is that's not a hallucination in the sense of a, a, a manifestation from my psyche. It's kind of perceptions being just so it's, I'm perceiving something, what, whatever Hoffman called the interface is sending some kind of signal. Hey, you're looking at the, it's um, self disappears. That's what people mm-hmm. would call e- ego death. But um, have, have you, can you point to an experience, be it, drug induced or through meditation where you've experienced your ego flailing uh, or, or, or being bruised or dying. Um, it comes back. <laughs> it rises from the, but it's uh it's freakish. It feels like death. I've experienced very extreme psychic <clears throat> pain through benzo withdrawal and alcohol withdrawal. And I guess it's as close as I've been to ego death because there are no, there's no ability to have a goal or um, enjoy anything. You know, whatever it is about you that makes you you, it doesn't matter to you anymore. You know, your hobbies, the people you love, you can't care about it. Because the pain is all there is. The pain, the panic, the you know, every moment is painful. And you can't do anything to get out of it. So the ego, the ego of desires and, and goals is gone, replaced by this pain, this intense dread and meaning there's no meaning things aren't meaningful to you it can't be um but just to switch gears i want to go back to what i was saying about the butterflies and get to finish about why consciousness happened in living things so those butterflies problem solved but unconsciously it was just a physical process of natural selection which solved the problem of them finding each other without finding sight other. in the trees. Without without having to think or, or plan. Yeah. Language. Consciousness allows us to do that kind of thing in real time. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. That's freaking me. Oh, okay, wait. Keep going. I, I just, this is just how powerful language is. I think it jars the idea. Is this, what if we didn't have language, right? Like we didn't come up with syntax or anything. Will we have access to this consciousness? No. Oh, okay. Without language, we couldn't think about these things. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's like, what we're thinking you like without language, we can't say because we have it and we've, uh, we've had it since we could we think. We can't remember. <laughs> we can't like, what's it like to be a five month old? But, I mean, you can perceive without language and you can picture without language. Well, then related to the um, butterflies, like you're saying it's conscious, but it's consciousness without language. Well, Is there I'm a saying, distinction? I'm saying they didn't have consciousness, oh, okay. but they, but a problem was solved without it, without consciousness. Okay. The problem was reproduction. You know, reproduction is difficult when they can't see each other. The solution was a clearing on top of a, Mountain where they could. Yeah, we are conscious. So if we faced a similar problem, we would think about it and come up with a solution and then act on it. And we could do that very quickly. 
once we have well, what the problem is, we can start thinking and come up with a solution and then interact with the environment to fix it. And, what, and we can do that all in an hour or whatever. The butterflies had to, it had to take many, many generations. What do you call thought then in a butterfly? Well, like, let's not like uh, take away the biology, like problem is jeopardizing reproduction, conscious, right? Consciousness is a, a solution to a problem. It's a solution to a problem. So without thought, like thought in the way we understand it, say just even language. It's just fun to think about a group of butterflies solve a problem. What is solved? Like it's hard to apply this to the hive without agency, without voice. Like, like yeah, well, it's, problems get solved. Why do they want to win? What are they going to win? Well, they don't. <laughs> what do they win? They don't have any. They don't have desires. I mean, they they are they are these things which have parts which have functions and they store information there, and project a, it through a, the map. The, there's a drive in them to reproduce and to to. To keep on living. What's that drive? It's just strange to me. Like, it's a, you know, what we call instinct, right? The instinct has been formed by natural selection too. Um, and, you know, the things that are part of instinct are there because they are conducive to fitness. Um, the, what wants this to happen? Reproduction, life continuing, nothing. Yeah. The life itself doesn't want anything. It has instincts, drives. It's automatons. Uh, they're just doing, they, progr- they're programmed. The environment interacts with them and then they react because of the way their, their genes, the instinct in them. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Joe Van Wee. I'm the host of All Better. But I'm also the CEO of Fellowship House. At Fellowship House, we believe long-term recovery requires a personality change as well as a clinical intervention. These ideas can take several months to achieve. Our philosophy is to provide a safe, therapeutic, and exceedingly active environment for patients to achieve these personality changes and find joy in the Fellowship of Recovery, which will allow for long-term sobriety. We believe that recovery extends beyond treatment and peer-to-peer communities into real life. In Fellowship House, we provide a design for living that focuses on education and service. We have strong relationships with the 12 universities and vocational schools in the area and ensure that our fellows pursue their personal goals while entering sobriety. We also stress independence and responsibility making sure each individual is financially solid and self and helping to make their community a better place. As a treatment center, Fellowship House offers both residential and outpatient treatment services to individuals and families affected by addiction and alcoholism. We're a DDAP licensed provider of general outpatient, intensive outpatient, and partial hospitalization programming as well as a level of care assessments. If you want to find out more information about Fellowship House, please visit fellowshiphouses.com. How do you defeat an argument, say, from um, 
a creative intelligence design perspective, say a, a fundamental Christian that's, you know, intellectual. And they say, well, right there, I'm pointing to design there. Like what can make the manifest this? You take a bunch of unconscious objects or materials. And we, we, we've talked about the subatomic. Now they get, you put enough together, they create some sense of complexity. This game just starts happening yeah, yeah. out of chaos of butterflies and people. And we're on a, fucking podcast talking about it well what causes the design argument doesn't work because we know design emerges without a designer well it emerges simply but we were well we have if i was on their side i'd say yeah you're you're still saying this from the perspective of time what if this creator doesn't experience time and skills like us it's watched 10 minutes of us well some you know some believers they think evolution does happen yeah. Oh, and that God set it in motion. He's the prime mover. Yeah. Um, Acquainted. Well, he wasn't into the. I can't he, say whether that's true or not. No you one can't, can. No one can. Like, I'm not against that idea. I I have no desire to answer that question because yeah. I don't, I can't answer it. I don't think anyone can. No, me neither. And if someone asked me, well, you know, what set it in motion? I just say, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not going to posit something. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what benefit I it gives. See, it doesn't add see. attributes to the, the I prime mean, there'll mover. there'll just be more questions after. <laughs> yeah, there's, Why is there this thing setting it in motion? Anyway, yeah. you know, but, um, aha, but, um, <laughs> what if it's, uh, something that wouldn't be, you know, historically what we would think divinity is. So some just virtuous or dichotomies, even if it was like Zoroaster, there's two competing forces. There's the creator and he has this, adversary trying to meddle up his creation. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, well, like you can come up with all kinds of neat narratives about it, about why we're here, why life we have. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there's, a, you know, they are, they occupy a place in human culture, a very important place. Obviously yeah. they wouldn't happen if they didn't. Obviously they answer some, you know, these deep questions we have and they give meaning to a lot of people. Uh, but they aren't, they aren't primarily answers to questions in the terms of why things are the way they are, um, because they don't really work as answers because they're just new questions. So if you're a free thinker, fairly intellectual, and you're coming from your position, is this a hang-up in feeling totally immersed into a community that uses the word God very freely? Um, but then, you know, hedges it. Don't worry. It's higher power. Don't worry again. You could make, you know, it's whatever your understanding is, but then you live in the Poconos, (laughs) Northeastern PA, and we're all winking, you know, uh, well, we know what God really works. Don't use the, don't use the wrong God. How how do you, um, that requires you to have a lot of tolerance. Yeah. Well, when I was younger, I was a, a atheist in the sense, and I was anti-theist. I, I, yeah. I thought it would be better if we didn't believe in God, and that or I reject thought, him if he existed. Yeah, and I thought people who believed in God were were wrong, and that they should be convinced otherwise. Like I don't think that anymore at all. Sure, I am still an atheist in the sense that I don't have any belief in God, but the basis of my atheism is not evidence-based. It's 
that I don't know what the concept of God is because, you know, to say if something exists, you need to know what it is first. Yeah. Like you need to have a definition and then you, you see, well, is there something out there which satisfies this definition? I, the definition of God is infamously, I mean, you ask people what God is and they, you yeah, get so many different answers. So like the definition I don't know what the definition of God is. I know what people say, but they say all different kinds of things. So if someone asks me, does God exist? This is called theological non-cognitivism. It mm-hmm. means that these words like God, soul, heaven, I if I say I'm a theological non-cognitivist, which is what I am, it means I don't know what these concepts mean, or I don't know what these things are that you're talking about. So I can't say whether they exist or not. Because I first need to know what you're talking about. Now, if you get specific, you say, well, did Jesus come back from the dead? That, I know what that means, and I could say yes or no. Like, I believe he did, or I believe he didn't. Um, <clears throat> but when you say, does God exist? I cannot answer, because I don't know what's being asked about. So if you're going to be poetic in your own mind, and not for the sake of a, a clean formal, logical argument. And you want to relate to a community of people who are having transformations or ideas of transcendence because of the proximity of the group, the virtues and exercises they're trying to practice, say the 12 steps or say Dharma recovery or some smart recovery, a cognitive. And to hear this word God all the time and know it's meaning some kind of substantially different thing. Even if people are agreeing on God, you know, it's a different internal experience. What? And for God to be really true, it goes on. It has to be unified in people's minds. Like for yeah, it to be if, powerful. If there's a God <laughs> or it's not powerful. Whatever God means. If there is this thing, God, no, but you know, it, how do you it, skirt it, that though? To find community, like, um, like a fellowship because I struggled with that. Yeah, I used to, I don't anymore. Um, AA, you know, the higher power is a fundamental part of it. And, you know, it used to really bother me because they could be whatever, you know, it's your higher power. Well, obviously if there's a higher power, it's, it's the same for everybody. But, um, but that doesn't bother me anymore because the important thing is having this non-local power, which can help you. And what's non-local outside it means of your it's own? Outside of you, it's yeah. it's not in you, and it's not created by you. For me, the higher power is obviously the group, in the sense of the group has power. The group can do things you can't. Look at the people who are sober for you. You can't do that. You know, you come in. I I can't do that. But somehow they did it through being connected to the group. So that's evidence the group has power you don't. The group has desires. So the group wants you to be sober. The group wants you to succeed. And the group the group has other powers too. The, like just regular thing, the group can help you go. You know, They can pick you up. Someone from the group can pick you up. The group can even help you out with money. I've seen that happen. Yeah. Anyway, there's all these powers in the group that you don't have yourself. And if you accept that, 
that's, you know, you've accepted there's a higher power greater <laughs> than you that can restore your sanity. You see people are saying, and you're not. Yeah. You know that they're saying the group AA made that possible. That's all the evidence you need of a higher power. And it's easy to accept that. And then you've done that step. Um, and then uh, it gets tricky with prayer. You don't pray to the, you don't pray to the group, right? I, uh, I don't pray. Um, I did when uh, multiple times in my life, I don't pray on the reg. I do say prayers sometimes, and it seems to be an interruption to rumination. Now I don't, have an idea of the God, but I'd say the prayer of St. Francis it seemed like the virtues I did not have. <laughs> I yeah, wanted well, to interrupt my own thoughts with the script and kind of say these things. I'd rather bring joy or, or, or courage rather than fear. I'd rather understand people first and they need to understand me. I didn't have that agency anymore, that footing in life. I was in such pain and distress. My mind was unbridled. Um, so I, I, but meditation, I think anyone, and I think it's, I think it's worth exploring because it's like, man, you could go through life not having any clue of what kind of quantum computer I've been stuck in calling it myself. I don't know what this is. Meditation kind of is the first and only practice or tool I've had to be able to put a real mirror up to what I've been calling myself or my experience. It doesn't complete it. doesn't give me a full flushed out, but, but it makes me feel like I have more of an interesting and profound life. I'm experiencing it more deeply. Yeah. I mean, I, um, yeah, the, like I read about lots of different things because I feel like life is richer when you know what's going on, <laughs> when you, when you know, but it's also more painful. Would you agree? Yeah, it can be because you learn a lot of things that are disturbing or, you know, like take history. History is horrible. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, Hegel called it the slaughter bench of history. Yeah. History is mostly violence even what we think of as high art civilization is only created through violence. Exploitation. Yeah. The, Cruelty. So, yeah, it's going to be painful when you're like, oh. Well, there's that aspect. I wanted to say that you just noted the history. But then there's the other painful aspect of things that your culture might have provided that comfort and provided yeah, meaning yeah. will drop, the floor drops out on yeah, them. Yeah, you, you thought that these were objective universal things and then it turns out oh they're just a product of this culture yes. in a particular time and place. Yeah. And other people have different different ideas about this it stuff. It could be a crisis for some. It was for me when myth drops out, well where do I I had nowhere to grab onto. Well is it all do I throw it all out? Like this is it's built on a huge fundamental lie. This is the great thing though. Okay, so like we each have our what we call morals and we have the things we're for and against and we think we have ideas about how we should treat people and how we should treat those we love and those we hate. These things were kind of inculcated in us as we developed, partly because of 
how what we are, but also what we were taught, the kind of people we were around. And then we have these stories about why they're the best. Like, <laughs> why being good, whatever your definition of good is, is right and true, and it's the universe sort of, it's, you know, justifies it. Like, this is the way to be. There's an objective, eternal reason. Yeah. And that's what justifies this way of being. Well, wouldn't it be courageous of me in that same paradigm people fail to want to understand i'm going to be the villain i'm doing this because we need one <laughs> well oh, the story doesn't work without me but it if you accept you accept that role that'd be exciting you're, you're being an interesting person and i always look to this line in scripture i'd like your thoughts be neither hot or be either hot or cold, like on the, the variables of ten- temperature, but never be lukewarm in the middle because the serpent will eat you up and spit you out. Well, nothing interesting emerges from the middle. No. Um, it's, the, you know, the, it's the audience. Uh, uh, there's lots of stuff I could talk. I'm trying to think. All, of right. All right. So like <clears throat> we have an idea of what it is to be good and to do the right thing versus the wrong thing. Some of us think that this has to be justified by some principle or, you know, something beyond us, which makes it right and true, objectively, not just because we feel like it. Yeah, and that usually shows itself as a story, a creation yeah, story, kind of story to the end of the story. We're, we're the what victories I, to the good. What I believe is uh, um, that these sensibilities that we have have just developed in the physical world in a community over time and that they change and that they don't have any justification beyond that. That's not disturbing to me because it doesn't change anything about the, the, the way I am or the way I feel like I still, I still have an idea of what the right thing is. It's disturbing to me when people don't do it. Mm-hmm. So like, like viscerally, you go, okay, and, like you see a, you see a homeless person and you, you start insulting them or kicking them or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I'd say that's the wrong thing and that you shouldn't do that. And that I will judge you if you do. I don't have a God or a principle, objective principle, which tells me that that's an, a sensibility I have developed, uh, you know, developed over time. Would you have developed, like they always say, would you have developed it if we didn't have? Yeah, it would so, be different if I, if I lived 200 years ago. Yeah, but it, would it be different? Like it, it, it'll always go back to the prime idea. Was there revelation to primates? Did someone show up and say, hey, you got it all yeah. wrong. Stop shitting well, that's all story. over the place and that's put some the, clothes on. And that's <laughs> a, clothes. So that's a story about where they came from. Where did these ide- feelings and ideas about right wrong come yeah. from? Well, they this being gave them to us. Uh, I don't obviously believe yeah. that, that happened. I think they were generated over time. Through and eating mushrooms. They aren't static. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they, uh, <laughs> all right. So like there are certain things which are pretty constant, you know, like uh, what people say, killing murder. Yeah. That's not true. Like, okay. Th- samurai, would cut off the head of someone who didn't bow to them. Yeah. That's murder. But people 
people in that culture didn't think that was wrong. The samurai should that that's what the samurai should do because it's a matter of honor. Yeah. And honor was they had this sensibility about honor, very strong that that was developed over time in Japan. And it shows up as the that's the right thing, and to not do that is the wrong thing. Now, I'm sure for the guy getting his head cut off. It, and his family. He didn't want that to happen. And his family would be devastated and everything. But murder is wrong. Like, we regard it as wrong in certain contexts, and others we don't. I mean, I think dropping bombs is murder. Uh, you know, you're dropping bombs in a city, you're killing non-combatants. You, you justify it by saying, well, we have to win the war, and that's ultimately good, for, better than not winning. But we have all kinds of situations where we think killing is good, or at least, at least justified. And those contexts that say killing is good here or not here, that's changed. You know, it's not, yeah. it hasn't been the same all the time. <clears throat> Modern humanity is much more sensitive to murder. Yeah, and very to, much so. You know, we, we... So it almost naturally, would you say, there's, there seems to be a progress up to today of things yeah. getting every century less violent, some hiccups well, here and there, but... Yes, we, we become more humanistic in the sense we see, we kind of have this belief that life is valuable in itself and that destroying life is bad. And that's almost a hive. It almost seems global. It's because of a... It's global now. Development of empathy, of putting yourself in someone's shoes. What does that do? Well, we'd have a long discussion because right there I see a total pivot to your favorite uh, Marxist ideas is what does that do to production if we don't have that driving force? Yeah, well, production, uh, you know, production on the scale of... We, that we have, it requires immense violence. And, and that lack of empathy, exploitation. Yeah. Like, how, how does it fully form? If, if we're going in the direction of enlightenment, a transcendence that's just happening to value human life, when does that translate? Yeah, so... They're one in the same story. Marx had the idea that, like, history was moving towards a society which truly acknowledged the individuality of each person and this society worked to make it so each person could develop unhindered by need. You know, their needs would be met. Oh, yeah. how, how do you develop as a personality? How do you become educated? Needs have to be met first. It's Maslow. We were last guest here. We were talking about Abraham um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you can't be a fully developed or explore the potential of consciousness when you were talking spotlight and lantern consciousness of attention, you can't even get to the ideas of self self actualization, the apex of the pyramid where on top of consciousness being the pyramid, let's just even say without basic needs being met food, shelter, water, or you still have to keep the primal part of your brain. Yeah. You active measure threats, be aggressive, competitiveness, always operating from a sense of personality that's ego to take, go out to the world, take things back. That's intense. If, if that was alleviated, I mean, what would be the potential that evolution or this little path we take? It, it's, it's 
your imagination can't stop. Right. Would you? Yeah. The, the people who are for, who because of circumstance have to toil their life away. Um, can don't have the time or the energy to develop as a person. They, if you're just working and then sleeping and you, you have very few possessions and you <clears throat> don't have access to a lot of things, you can't travel, you can't, I mean, you have very little freedom. Even if your political freedom is guaranteed, you're not a slave, you're not um, imprisoned, um, you are free in the sense that you can say what you like, vote for who you like. But um, do you still see it, that freedom you're about to describe? It sounds like you're going to say, but is it like a, a serfdom? Okay, you're attached a, to a proximity because of your labor? It's a, it's a legal freedom and it's a negative freedom. It's, it says what you can do with, and it says nothing about the material circumstances where you, where you, that yeah. you live in. So we're all equally free in that we have freedom of speech, but a rich person, their speech yeah. can do a lot more than mine can. They can get it to a lot more people it will influence minds, and but mine won't. I, I don't have access to the kind of media and technology, and I can't travel to make my word have that power. So we're both free to say what we like, but they can do a lot more with their speech than I can um, because of the material substrate they have. But... Let's let's just stop there and personalize a little. Are we ever driven to do that? You personally, because I have. A, you've always had interesting things. You have really flushed out morals and thoughts when we have conversations. Did you ever have a drive anywhere in you to share that on a scale that would require publishing, speaking, doing it formally? Were you, I, I have. Uh, I have lots of. Um, Defects in terms. Uh, I'm not very social because I get it drains me, <laughs> yeah. and I'm not ambitious in the sense of making things happen to improve my lot in life. And I, um, a lot of that has to do with my own social anxiety and my non-competitiveness. I I don't like competing. Yeah. I mean, I did want to be a I did want to go in academia at one point in my life. But the process of getting there isn't just about learning and teaching. It's also, yeah. there's all this other stuff and you're competing and you have to convince people that you're worthy of the job. It's very hard for me to do. I don't know. I mean, I don't know why. I, I mean, I developed such a way that I had this problem with this stuff and, I, and that's <clears throat> meeting new people is terrifying sometimes to me yeah. going in new buildings even is um and i never had this sort of ambition that arose in me to to become this or that and Did that drove me i was always driven more towards these private pursuits which gave me a sense i don't know they they stimulated me and they made me content so that made 
worldly concerns about success f- fall away. I think I developed them as a way to cope when I was a teenager because I was, I had very few friends and I was made fun of and bullied in middle school. Um, I developed these ways to cope, private pursuits, private flights of fancy, and they became a big part of my life. And breaking out of that towards ambition, worldly ambition, never really happened. No, did and then alcohol. Yeah, also I was an addict, and I screwed up a lot of things. Yeah, I dropped out of school. I destroyed relationships, legal trouble, whatever. Like, you know, yeah. that also yeah. hindered it. And I'm in a point in my life now where even if I wanted to pursue worldly success, I can't. I I I don't have the resources or the time. Um I I am profoundly unfree in that I struggle to survive and that's that takes up a lot of my time. Um you know, and I I could spend time regretting it, but I you know, there's no point. No. <clears throat> did did alcohol initially give you make you feel the opposite of that or make you feel comfortable within this is who I am. Was there a Liberty alcohol? Could it soothe you? And alcohol, I mean, more than any other drug, alcohol was like a, a warm blanket. It sort of enveloped me. It made me unafraid. It, it made me being sociable. It was no effort. Um, I could externalize my thoughts easier. I didn't think about what other people thought about me. Yeah. Euphoria. Uh, everything else was more interesting. I laughed more. Uh, I would st- be stimulated by conversation more. And, yeah, the fear that I've had my whole life just went away completely. Only alcohol did that. I mean, like, uh, I've done opiates. I still have that fear there in the background. Yeah, and the, it's just yeah. buzzing. <laughs> Yeah, alcohol was a great elixir for that, than that condition. So the condition prior to that, if we had to put a term or an idea or a concept, say generalized anxiety disorder, some idea like this, I'm not saying, or diagnosing, I'm not a clinician, but it's treating something else. Addiction in itself is is really a defense. It's rising. Um. Have you met anything that could defend you, not in the immediacy and the impulse of alcohol since then that gives you kind of, st- you feel stable around outside of AA? Is there any ideas? What do you, what did you, re- what do you replace it with? Alcohol? Yeah. Um, or, or better yet, how do you confront the, 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 the infrastructural problem? Fear. Pain, unresolved pain, and that just starts to cause, like in me, inadequacies, disconnection. Well, a big part of it was I came to learn over time that other people are not how I thought they were. <laughs> they are not happy. They they pretend. I mean, I'm not saying nobody's happy, but a lot of people pretend to be happy, and they pretend that. You mean intentionally pretend or, or, or I mean, like drinking like an elixir, like they're diluted, diluted? Well, they're put, some people, yeah, they intentionally put Both. it in the front. Yeah. I mean, I know this because they tell me to do it. 
<laughs> uh, they say, you know, you That's could have the best explanation because someone would be like, no, you're not getting it. No, no, I'm getting it. They're telling me to do this. Fake it. You have to pretend to be uh, to like them or you have to pretend to be happier. And that tells me that they do that. And um, I never learned to do that. And I have no desire to do it. It requires so much energy. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm too old now anyway. No, I'm not going to become this other person. What do you mean? You're not going to join us? We're all here happy pretending. We've found out how to pretend. We found out. So for some people, they, they find it. Sorry. They find the way I am disturbing or upsetting. Not because I'm bothering them or insulting them or doing. Mm. I'm just not. I don't appear engaged enough or happy enough or interested in them enough. I used to feel that I would always try to entertain you with jokes. There'd be some afternoons. It would just be us hanging. I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not reaching out. You just have your arms crossed. We'd be watching some fucking deranged movie or. Yeah. Yeah. You have that effect of people, especially people who wouldn't understand or don't know you. But uh, using the word disturbed is awesome. <laughs> I will say this. I did try to pretend when I was, when you're a teenager, that's when you're learning to be, sure. to be a, a grown-up. Yeah. You're learning who you are, right? So you fall in with people and you sort of emulate them. So you're you're putting on this mask, seeing how you like it. And if you like it enough, I guess it kind of becomes who you are. But I would go from, like, different styles. Yeah. I was, like, kind of a hippie. I adopted hippie clothes, hippie music. But... Didn't total gel. This is, like I said, you know... This this is work. And I mean it took a long time for me to become comfortable with who I am and not have to put on a mask. Or pretend that I'm happier than I am, or pretend that I'm more successful than I am, or pretend that whatever. I mean you know, it's a lot of it's about my face, like make my face more expressive. <laughs> People want me to do that. Either they say it or it's obvious. Uh, I mean, male uh, men will tell me to smile. You know, usually you think of men as telling women to sm- you yeah. smile more, honey. You. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be walking. People I don't even know, like at work, they'll be like, "Hey, smile! It's a beautiful day." I'm like, "What the fuck? Like, why are you thinking about that?" <laughs> I can't. I can't imagine going about and looking at people and saying, "Where's that smile?" And saying, "You know, they." They just don't have the right expression. Like, who fucking cares what expression someone has? You didn't say your prayers. prayers. Like, let people be who they are. Let me ask you, in the midst of that, and I'm I'm your friend, and I believe, and I know you have a sense of self that um, lasts when you're sober, or if you were in distress, say you're sober, and then if... You were in active addiction. As your friend, I'm seeing there's this there's this clean narrative that doesn't break. There's Adam. There's Adam. And I don't think it's a person like they always describe it as a personality change that now will overcome alcoholism. And we we're talking about this, but I don't think you're you're not mocking that idea. You know, some people are deluded themselves into some kind of persona, this charm. This is what sober life is. I have to dial it in. That does, that is exhausting. I've I've experienced it myself. 
Um, and if you stay alive long enough, it well, will collapse and explode in your face and people get hurt and you, you experience pain. How do you describe in yourself? What, what is Adam in between say we both have had experiences of feeling the fundamental kind of expression of a or practicing it and then returning to drinking where do you see what, what is the narrative that is like, I could safely come back. How do you get back? What, what is recovery to you? If you feel you failed at what you were perceiving AA as an expression of. Um, AA is, uh, AA contains multitudes. It's not one thing. Yeah. Different people approach in different ways. Um, you know, I was with a certain group of people when I f- first started, and they were very specific and and intense about the steps and doing them just like the book. And they all sort of had this demeanor that was the same. When you fall in with a group, yeah. Well, when you fall in a group, you explain of, that. All right, they were close talkers. Tone. Yeah, they uh, they looked at you alive too much, more than the average person. Kind of the earmarks of a cult, a little. No, like we're, without, I'm not, we're not even being sensational. I remember. Yeah. Let's just stop here. Let's explain who, like, without saying, this is from a generalized area. It wasn't here. They were Quaker Town and Quaker Town. Um, um, was it Reading? Or, I don't know, but. So they became a subculture within a subculture yeah. of AA. It's very tight-knit. The more tight-knit the group, the more you're going to sort of be drawn to be like them, to emulate them. And they had a leader, though. It always starts with a leader. Yeah, I don't remember his name. but I've, I don't remember his name, but um, let's unpack this, because this would look like they could show up at a meeting, and they knew the book, and they talked about it as if it was like they were orthodox it was scripture mm-hmm. let's not deviate let's get started and then you know there could be, you're, you're talking about 30 to 100 people in this kind of circle where they if you meet one of them eventually you get to their leader and if i'm not mistaken it was kind of it was like almost a aa and a sex cult within yeah, AA. he owned a halfway house and he was having sex with people in the halfway house um, uh, I don't know many of the details. Uh, I had already stopped having contact with them before that. Yeah, that's what we met around there. I'm like, oh man, you you're in a cult, dude. <laughs> like, what that taught me is that I can I can adopt <laughs> I can adopt a a pretty intense group culture. Yeah. But I will. It will wear me out fast. Um, yeah, I think that's. I I fell. I realized that it, I was putting things on, and I was like, "Why? This is bad." <laughs> Did you feel it before you could articulate it? You felt at first. I or at first I was overcome by all the enthusiasm and charisma. <laughs> yeah, that I'm grosses like, you out always. This is great. Oh, they're very happy, and I go. Uh, they say this stuff, very simple stuff. The steps are simple in the book. You know, it doesn't take very long. Made them see life totally differently. Yeah. And uh, it happened to me. Like, I felt different after the steps. And I was, like, happy. 
and smiling. Um, but then when negative things would arise, they disturbed me greatly. I'm like, oh, I'm not doing it right. I feel afraid. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they don't seem afraid ever. I mean, they say they are and they talk about it. They're always like smiling. And I was really afraid or I had dark thoughts or whatever it was. And I would hide it because I didn't want to be judged. Yeah. You do that enough and it just goes away. The, the excitement goes away. And I just sort of fell out with it. But also the people, they, they sort of talk the same. And they never, go, they never develop their ideas. It's always the same simple stuff. And they all say the same stuff. And it's unchallengeable. Like it starts to become. Oh no. If you, uh, they're like to challenge it. They're like, what? They're like, what are you doing? Why are you doing it's that? In group, What's out the group. point? Like they're like, what's the point of questioning? I'm like, I don't, I'm not <laughs> saying there's a point. I'm, I'm just saying that, that I'm sort of driven to do that. And why wouldn't I, what, what am I supposed to be afraid of asking questions? If I'm supposed to be afraid and that's not good. I already should say this is bogus. If it means, if it only works because no one inquires about the nitty gritty of it, yeah. then that's not a good group. I mean, you shouldn't be afraid of questions. You sh- they shouldn't be out of bounds. And if your health, mental health, depends on keeping that stuff at bay, that's not very strong mental health. Like a real believer... Like, look at a priest, a Catholic priest, a lot of them. They are perfectly fine with you saying whatever you want or asking any question about their faith. And they aren't, they don't get offended and they don't. No, they're not. They, they are open to any knowledge or any line of inquiry. That's, that's a healthy faith. Yeah. That will remain, that's strong. It, you know, this stuff doesn't knock it down. It can engage with it. That's the kind, if I were to have faith, that's the kind of faith I'd want. The practice of kind of Catholicism, the thought, the intellectual life, yeah, centuries of... Catholicism is attractive to me. You know, I learned a lot about Catholic theology because there's an expansiveness to to what they allow you to ask them. And they might not have answers to everything, but you can ask and there's not... A sin? No. I mean, it used to be. <laughs> you go well, back a few hundred you years. Don't have to kill apostates. I, I've always wanted to go back to church to have. Um, there's a formal way to leave the church. I've never seen it happen. I would love to see it happen at a mass. Someone go up uh, um, and renounce their Catholicism. There's a procedure you would have to acknowledge at <laughs> the altar. Yeah. That'd be awesome. <laughs> But um, with that attractiveness and but the morals I know you have, how how would you want to even endorse or being in league with also the cruelty or or the politics of hiding and systematic torture, torture and and molestation of children for, for centuries, essentially, and like like the, is that where the kind of like you wouldn't join a fraternity because of I wouldn't join a fraternity for all kinds of reasons. Well, <laughs> uh, I think they promote a 
pretty unhealthy culture, but also I'm not the kind of person who could possibly enjoy being in a fraternity. I don't like parties or yeah. um, um, ritual, well, shared ritual. No, I hate you, all that stuff. But do you like observing it? Yeah, sometimes it depends, I guess, yeah. on what it is. But and I see the value in it. It's not like I think it's all stupid. Yeah, sure. Um, it all has a purpose. Believing in God helps a lot of people. The practice of the religion helps them. It gives them community. It gives them purpose. History. It sort of binds their life together in this greater purpose. There's One no, story. There's nothing, I think there's a uniqueness in that, to think you're part of a story that isn't, you know, I think there's dark parts of atheism that is reached through abandoning, say, Catholicism. Or if you were Jewish and you were raised in this culture, but then you your intellect can't sustain it or your intellectual life and you arrive at atheism and the atheism initially is just filled with the, the hard reality of materialism, the world's solid and all that there's no texture of mind, body. It's all kind of just happening. This evolution, cold, hard story of evolution. That could become a crisis because there's, there's no room for poetry or the, the, the spirituality or the modern term of it. I struggled with that. Um, I, it's, it was hard for me not to go into nihilism to becoming, being raised Catholic, being an atheist, arriving back into a recovery community in total crisis. There's panic a little bit because I'm like, how do I put my foot in this world? Like I, I want to be a part of a story. I want to think the is. I want to think there's meaning beyond my thought. Like I don't. I want connection. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that. I don't know how to talk about that without feeling like a freak. <laughs> there's all different all kinds of ways to have connection. So, <clears throat> besides a store, a grand story, but it requires you to not care about those grand story, grand answer. So, like, you take a project. Like some people there. They're in the Red Cross or something. It's a big project and you're with a bunch of people and there's all these goals. <clears throat> and the people who do it, they do it because they think it's worthwhile and meaningful. And that gives unity to their life. But you have to dispense with another bigger story which makes that story meaningful. Like, why is that meaningful? Yeah, Is it because... God has dictated that we help each other or or do we desire to help each other because of how we have formed over billions of years? Exactly. Um, Not everybody obviously thinks we should help each other. Some people, some people are, they hate humanity. And do you think that's from mental illness? Well, Well, first off, you don't, you don't believe in free will, do you? Or like, like in the, the context of this, I'm not saying pure determinism, but it's not free will and the agency. People don't choose to be the villain. Nobody chooses who they are. Yeah. No, I don't. I, we act. Well, we often act like people do. Yeah. We treat I, people I was like raised to believe that though. We treat people like they are who they want to be. <laughs> yeah. They aren't. They, they are what they are. And, they didn't choose it. If there's choice, 
real free will. It's a very small part of our activity. Yeah. Most of what we do is habit. Even like, so like me, me brushing my teeth is a habit, but so is like the movements I'm doing right. I'm not thinking, yeah. I'm not choosing to move my hands. I, I just did because I brought my attention to it, but usually we're doing things without any cognition because it's built from habit. Little babies, they don't have many habits at all, and they're just flailing and trial yeah. and error. Yeah, where, where does, when does free will arrive? I, we talked about this um, with Mike Archangeletti. I don't remember if Mike, he runs Clearbrook now as the executive director. And it's, it's, it's hard to talk about. It's not free will in any, like, choose your own reality and your decisions. That's not happening. Um, it's hard to commit stay puck committed to the full idea of determinism. We're stuck on these railroad tracks and we were trying to point out, is there times very limited times of agency? Because well, is that the only way to describe it? That, that in my view is the only way to describe it. Yeah. Obviously we have times where we deliberate and decide. Um, they're not common. Most of our day, we're not doing that. No, I get up, let's say, the baby gets up and I get up. Autom- I'm just all these automatic things start happening. I get the baby and I change her. Then I have to put her somewhere safe so I can go smoke a cigarette. <laughs> and then I got I brush my teeth and go about all the things that need to be done. And it's all sort of habitual. I, I'm not deciding consciously. Huh. So I brush my teeth now or no? I'm not thinking that. I just go brush my teeth. It would be a cascade of failure and anxiety. Imagine if you had to decide every. I action. have. I felt my brain. I've felt moments like that. I'd be like, "Should I go downstairs?" My and it was usually under extreme. Yeah. The end of fight or flight or a trauma. I would be like that for months. Like I'm wasting time. And I would eventually just go back to bed. Mo, we are most uh, efficient and effective when we are running flow state. Yeah, it's just happening when. There's not that intervention of deliberation or decision. We decide when things are gone wrong or novelties happened. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like I'm eating my friend for lunch and I get there and I, I got to look at the menu and decide what to eat. I'm deliberating. I'm reading and I'm thinking about what food I want, what it tastes like. And then I, at some point it feels like I say, I want that. And, and that means I don't want all this other stuff. That undoubtedly happens. That's what we call free will. <laughs> That's all there is to it. That happens. <laughs> it's it's nuts. The yeah. question is, is that caused or do we just choose? Yeah. Uh, uh, what so is it like, stacked on? All these other determination points that are committing you to remembering why you like grilled cheese. Who told you to like, like what, where well, does like, free will begin? Well, if, if you're, free will decision to eat grilled cheese for lunch as opposed to everything else in the menu is caused and not just chosen freely from inside some way in you just come, you know, you pick something and that's what caught, you know, the causing is you picking or is the picking caused to, is that caused? If it's caused, I think it is. Um, it's caused by things you're not conscious of. It's caused by physical oh, processes. It's, it's crazy. And if mathematically, or the hard science of the world, just raw data, if we knew all the set points of the mechanical world, even in the first 300 million years it was set, 
if there's an all-knowing presence of math and how this dance had happened, wouldn't you know you were having the grill? Like if there was an observer back then that could compute all this? Knowles Adam's going to pick that fucking grilled cheese. So did you, is there an Adam, yeah. and is he choosing the grilled cheese if all of this has been a play of just Adam's moving? And, and, no I pun guess, intended. Yeah, the, the hard, hard determinism says it's all been set by cause and effect, the chain of causation since the beginning. Um, that my decision to eat the grilled cheese has caused You're was caused it. by a brain state and that brain state was caused by things going on in the body and previous brain states and that brain itself was caused by evolution you know so there's this chain of cause eventually leading to the che- decision to eat the grilled cheese yeah we don't have access consciously to that chain we just f- so so the expression of free will is it, it you know you have to com- like posit that it's it's an illusion to feel agency, for some reason this makes us more functional to experience time. If if determinism's true, but I'm still feeling I have free will and I chose to grill cheese, well, what is the purpose of yeah. even having the of delusion that, of, having that. of free will? I can only speculate. I think it's a side effect of consciousness. Consciousness didn't emerge. You know, this is my speculation. Consciousness didn't just come because animals have to decide because it's more fit. No. Uh, Consciousness first was just sensation, and then a patch of skin could sense light. Yeah. A worm. A worm would probably be. You know, rudimentary consciousness is something, probably something like direct experience, but no memory or reflection. I'm sorry, but I would do that. I would pretend I was a worm. Yeah. And I'd be like, Wow. If you could just focus on your breathing and see red lights peeking through your fingers, I'd be uh, like that. Okay, there's a consciousness in that light perception. Go ahead, though. <laughs> um, consciousness obviously does serve. It does. This is beneficial to us. It allows us to problem solve at a very high speed. <sighs> Why do we have all this technology? Because we can problem solve unlike any other. Th- because we're going to build God and then disappear. <laughs> He's going to eat us. So <laughs> He's <gonna> eat- <laughs> consciousness does that for us. It allows us to do that, and that's beneficial in terms of fitness. I mean, eventually it might not be. If we destroy ourselves with technology, yeah. that's not that's not uh, conducive to fitness, obviously. Yeah. But it must have emerged because it was conducive to fitness for some reason, and that's the reason or one of the reasons it allows problem solving. Um, Does it freak you out that fitness could be so phenomenal driving us to this complexity that we're, it's to be off planet. Like, like there, there is some sense in this guiding invisible natural selection of complexity that it, it's operating in a time scale. I'm almost talking about natural selection. It's hard not to, that it's conscious. Um, it's yeah, weird. Even Darwin, it's really hard. Darwin, Darwin, fate, you know, cause the way he spoke about it, like selection, we think of selection as useful. Something selecting. There's something behind the selection. Yeah. It's hard to talk, you know, they're metaphors. Then it's not real selection in the sense of but real selection measured threats in on pl- our planet, our terrain as, um, this would be highly probable. It's going to kill this species off where it's living It either moved 
like something in evolution drew drove that species to move from that place geographically because there's no food it's becoming hostile temperature changes is something driving us to get off the fucking planet like is this natural selection or are we claiming it as intelligence there's you can't separate them well just because our consciousness had to emerge because it was conducive to fitness but that doesn't mean every product of consciousness is conducive to fitness conscious can do things which have nothing to do with fitness daydreaming doesn't have Anything to do with fitness. Um, well, think of the complexity of leaving the planet, leaving the planet too early. All the resources dedicated that are going to hurt people here who are living on the planet to get off planet. This, oh, right, this so is right. a real complex decision yeah. for a species to getting make. Off, getting off planet <laughs> me, extends our reach and extends the species. Yeah. Okay. At the exploitation this of is, the species that's here, like well, how many people could, are going to be? Ex- so say like Elon Musk, wild entrepreneur, tactician, showman, whatever you want to think of him. Um, he's a billionaire at the, whatever the, you know, investment and the return on investment, how many people work for him? How many people buy his products? How many people don't get any close, anything close to the value of what they cost and went to him? So he's drained out of this economic idea, how we run life, billions and billions of dollars from, and he's going to put it towards getting us off, off planet. That's not, he didn't, it wasn't too violent. I guess that's not bad in the context of history, but is that what it's going to take? Do we need exploitation to survive? Well, to make decisions. It sounds like little like transistor hubs. One human has to be the transistor hub. How do you act that way without exploiting hundreds, yeah. thousands of people beneath you to make the decision that nobody's going to want to make <laughs> like yeah, well, consciously now as the way we, but <clears throat> I know it's winding down, but uh, you know, all of that said uh, the last kind of idea was going to just bounce off you to, and to wind down talking about that was uh, I was listening to Sam Harris, um, one of his podcasts. He said, looking for the meaning in life is a psychological problem, not a philosophical problem. <laughs> I'll end with that. What do you, how uh, would you unpack that? Wittgenstein thought all ph- philosophical questions were psychological problems. <laughs> there, there was a mental, basically mental health problems. And, you know, to, to solve it, there it is. I'm sorry, I was just pointing to Wittgenstein's book. To solve it, you have to realize the questions don't make sense. That's what he thought. You know, yeah. it's a kind of anyway. But meaning of life is not really a philosophical question because it doesn't really mean much. Yeah, it, like a philosopher will take it and unpack it and find out that there's not much being asked about. Um, <laughs> that you know, what is meaning? Meaning is, you know, things are meaningful to me. Yeah. People are meaningful. Movies, meaningful. Art. And I love animals, you know, whatever. Meaning is something that exists in the context of a life. Yeah. And people can have shared meanings and everything. But life itself, to say what's the meaning of it, it's hard to say what you're asking about. Life's here and it was caused. That's it. There, Meaning, you're experiencing meaning right when now. You, when you ask about a meaning, you're assuming something for which it has meaning. And 
if we're asking the question, then life itself, just life, doesn't mean anything to us because it doesn't serve any purpose. Like particular, we eat particular life forms and we want to live and that serves us. But life existing, you know, we it's not meaningful in the sense of we can't say what reason it's here for. It alter, like what is life for? There is no answer to that question. What is that cow for? In terms of our purposes, well, to make milk and we eat it or whatever. So things have meaning in the context of purposes. There are purposes. If there's a greater purpose, we have no access to it. And we, you know, the meaning of life would be, would mean there'd be something for which it had meaning. And that would be the answer. Would that be the premise of Wittgenstein's work, the tactus would? Oh, the purpose the, defines the, the vice versa. Tractatus, uh, the Wittgenstein in in that work isn't really concerned with things like meaning. It's more like you know these basic philosophical problems, mind body problem. I skipped the first half of that book. I'm not reading six pages of what, equation. Uh, his, his what <laughs> what what is truth? Yeah. How do we say things that depict the world? These are the problems he's concerned with, and he's about untangling them or showing that they're pseudo-problems or, or yeah. giving an answer, a definitive answer. I think the freaky thing um, about that, it's it's the, the guiding intelligent force of AI developers first, like before Alan, coupled with Alan Turing, they're looking at that and saying, see, we, intelligence could rise if we build it this way. That's kind of cold. It little freaks me out. Are we special? <laughs> Are we? Yeah. Well, they, they no philosopher or Western philosopher that I know of ever spent any time asking and answering what's the meaning of life. No. Philosophers are concerned with specific questions. That's far too broad. Yeah. That question means different things to different people. Um, and if someone asked me that, I would. Say, I don't know what you're talking about. I want you to get away from me. <laughs> what do you want to, like, I would have to ask them what they mean. Yeah. Do you really want to? <laughs> well, <clears throat> Adam, we did two two minutes, or two hours and 24 minutes. It should be my longest podcast. Wow, I don't know why anyone would want to see that long. <laughs> well, I force it. I found a way, I have this new app that just plays it on phones, like a Target phones, and it just starts playing on them. It'd be oh. amazing. <laughs> Ah, totalitarian inter- entertainment. <laughs> well, why not? It's recorded, you know, 6,000 years from now. Uh, some freakish life form is just curious of what, you know, apes were talking about. Maybe they could recreate us from this sound. Mm-hmm. They don't even need the DNA. I know that sound. I know what that molecular structure of that sound would look like. They recreate the neurons in my head and they're like, see? Yeah. I knew it. <laughs> All right, get rid of them. You just get tossed back out. No. Yeah. Well, uh, I hope we could talk again soon. And uh, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, no problem. Let's it was take, fun. Take a smoke break. Yeah. I'd like to thank you for listening to another episode of All Better. You can find us on allbetter.fm. Or listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Alexa. 
special thanks to our producer, John Edwards, and engineering company 570 Drone. Please like or subscribe to us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And if you're not on social media, you're awesome. Looking forward to seeing you again. And remember, just because you're sober doesn't mean you're right. Are you still there? I told you this episode was long. This is the last time I'm going to interrupt. Probably. Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you.